Thank you so much for having me here. As Sarah said, my name is Andy Moore. I am a campus minister at Belfield Presbyterian Church serving with the CCO, that's the Coalition for Christian Outreach, going on my, about my 15th year. And uh, it was about 15 years ago, I went to what's called a staff seminar with the CCO to interview with them. And I had to go out in these little breakout sessions. And when I was waiting for the session to begin, to my left was none other than your pastor, Chris Ansel. And as I started talking to Chris uh, and telling him that I was applying for the CCO, he said, you should apply to Belfield, where, where he was working at the time. Uh, and I did, and I was accepted there and offered. Um, and I spent nine years working with Chris at Belfield. Uh, and I can honestly say I wouldn't be the minister I am today without Chris uh, and his direction as a boss and his friendship that he has given me over the years. So you have a blessing for having Chris as your head pastor. Uh, let me get started with prayer. Eternal Father, who has spoken in various times and in various ways to your people in the past, but in these last days in your Son, the Incarnate Word, we pray that you will open the mouth of your servant to proclaim that word and the power of the Spirit. And we pray that this same Spirit will open the hearts of its hearers who have assembled to receive your holy gospel, and write on their hearts your holy law, even as you have promised. All of this, gracious Father, we ask in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. So it has become an extremely popular thing in the past 10 years or so to take a DNA test. Uh, I'm talking about an ancestral DNA test, not a Mori Povich, you are the father DNA test. Um, and you can buy these kits at various places. Uh, Ancestry DNA, 23andMe, you can even find these on Amazon. Um, in order to discover who you are, in order to discover your heritage, they have slogans like, know your world from the inside, or know your personal story in a whole new way, or explore your DNA story. So we take these tests because we are eager to know who we are, where we belong. Genealogies are a way in which we can do that. And I am lucky enough that I've never had to take a DNA test because both sides of my family did a fairly rigorous dive into their respective family trees. Uh, I still remember in high school going through a stack of papers uh, that was the Moore family tree, and it dated all the way back, I would say, to probably medieval times. And through it, I found out that I was Scotch-Irish, uh, mostly Irish, uh, which is no surprise because I'm from West Virginia, and most people from West Virginia are Scotch-Irish. And that one of my ancestors uh, that was uh, proclaimed in this family tree was Robert the Bruce, also known as the outlaw king of Scotland. So Robert the Bruce was a Scottish king in the 14th century, uh, best known for overtaking the English king Edward II. Uh, this can be found in the mostly fictitious movie Braveheart uh, or in the Netflix original The Outlaw King. So I have some royalty in me, which is pretty cool, and I can't do anything with that, but it's, it's cool to know that. Um, a genealogy can list superlatives about yourself that you may not even knew existed. 
Um, now, if a genealogy can list a superlative, then it can also, unfortunately, list the things you are not so proud of. So I remember going downstairs to uh, my other grandparents, my maternal grandparents' basement uh, one time, the Stevens family, and there on the wall uh, of, was there uh, a poster of their family tree. It was, it was huge. And I would just look at that family tree for hours and explore it. Where did I come from on my mom's side, the Stevens family? And I found out again that I am mostly Scotch-Irish. Uh, but, uh, but as I combed through the names listed on that wall, I came across one name, Thomas Jonathan Stonewall Jackson, who was a Confederate general uh, in, in the American Civil War and a known slave owner. So sometimes a genealogy can list things that you wish were not part of you, um, the part of history that you wish just did not happen. And though being related to Stonewall Jackson doesn't define me as a person, it definitely tarnishes my family history. Genealogies can function in the same way in the Bible. They can tell you um, not just where a person came from, but who they are. And there's a very famous genealogy at the beginning of Matthew that does so. And that's what I'm going to be talking about today. Now, some of you are asking yourself, is he seriously going to go through a genealogy? Which the answer is yes. Um, and uh, because I'm going through a genealogy, you therefore doze off or start to snooze, uh, acting like you're actually praying. I know when you're actually sleeping, people. I want to preface, I believe Matthew's genealogy of Jesus uh, to be one of the coolest parts of scripture. It is so beautifully written, it is so intelligently written, um, and it says so much more than we can possibly imagine. So uh, let's go through this together in Matthew 1, 1 through 17. You can read along with me silently as I try to stumble through all of these names. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac, father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father, father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by his wife Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation of Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abiad, and Abiad, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Akim, 
and Achim the father of Iliad, and Iliad the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Matin, and Matin the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the, to the Christ, 14 generations. This is the word of the Lord. So that was pretty repetitive. A lot of times we just skip through all these names or skip through all these genealogies, but they serve to be very important. So to start, as any professor will tell you, a paper is only as good as its thesis. And in verse 1, we see Matthew's thesis, what he's trying to get across to his readers. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Okay, at first glance, this probably doesn't mean a whole lot to us. And the reason for this is because we are so far removed from its context. The Gospel of Matthew was written, you could have guessed it, by the Apostle Matthew, formerly known as a Levi. And Matthew was a Jewish tax collector at Capernaum, which means he was a man of wealth. As a tax collector, um, Matthew was pretty high in the ranks. He wasn't exactly a Roman official, but he belonged to a class of high-level officials who farmed the Roman taxes. And as such, he, he, uh, being a man of wealth, he probably had a very good education, which is apparent in the way he actually wrote the gospel. And we see uh, Matthew's conversion. It happens in Matthew 9, Mark 2, Luke 5, also known as the calling of Matthew. Matthew writes his gospel as a Jew to Jews, telling them that he has found in Jesus the fulfillment of all that is precious in Jewish heritage. In other words, how Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament. So fulfillment is actually a central theme in his gospel, and it's apparent from the get-go, especially in his thesis. But unfortunately, as 21st century Christians, a lot of this is just lost on us. And to understand it, we have to do a bit of homework. Um, so let's unpack this a little bit. Matthew 1.1, okay? The first two words in Greek are biblos genesios, okay? Uh, and tra we translate it in the ESV, if you read it, as the book of genealogy. Biblios means book, and genesios means uh, genealogy. That's usually what we translate as genealogy. Genesios is also where we get the word Genesis from. Um, so the, the first two words of Matthew's gospel are literally the book of Genesis. Uh, so the expression, the book of the genealogy, or the book of Genesis, is actually found twice in the Greek translation of the Old Testament in the book of Genesis. Genesis 2.4, in which it talks about the creation account and Genesis 5.1, where it refers to the ensuing genealogy right after that. So, Biblios, Genesios, is deliberately used as a callback to these two passages in Genesis. And this would have been just eye-opening to a Jewish reader. So, the theme of fulfillment of Scripture is signaled here from the very start. And these opening words suggest that a new creation is about to take place. So that's not a bad start to the gospel, right? 
So next we have, in verse 1, we have of Jesus Christ, or of Jesus the Christ. It can be translated that way. So let's unpack the word Christ. The word Christ is the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah. And often when we hear the title Messiah or Christ, we equate it with the modern title, the Chosen One, as if Jesus were Anakin Skywalker or Harry Potter or Neo from the Matrix. Um, All three of these characters were designated as the Chosen One in their respective movie or movies. They were chosen to bring down an evil regime, to restore peace. They were a savior, and Jesus is the savior. He is the savior. But the title of Christ or Messiah encompasses so much more than that. It is so much richer than that. So the word Messiah in Hebrew literally means the anointed one. Anointing is a biblical, it's a ritualistic act of pouring oil over a person's head in order to dedicate that person to God's service. Um, There are three professions listed in the Old Testament uh, that received anointing. Prophets, priests, and kings. So to say that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah, is to say that he fulfilled all three of these roles. But Jesus wasn't just any prophet or any priest or any king, but he fully encompassed these roles in perfection. So that's to say that Jesus was the prophet of prophets. He is the priest of priests, and he is the king of kings. Jesus was all three of these things, prophet, priest, and king. This is actually what's known uh, by theologians as the threefold office of Christ. So that's the first two things. Matthew's doing pretty good so far. And lastly, in the first verse, he has the son of David, the son of Abraham. Okay, so what does this mean? What does son of David, son of Abraham mean? Son of David is actually a very important designation in the book of Matthew. And it's referring to the covenant God swore to David in 2 Samuel 7. And this is what it says. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So what's happening here? God promised that one of David's immediate descendants would establish the kingdom. Even more, David's kingdom and throne would endure forever. And Matthew is saying at the beginning of his gospel that we see this king and this kingdom fulfilled in Jesus. Next, the son of Abraham. Uh, we see that God also made a covenant with Abraham. This is found in Genesis 12 and in Genesis 15. Uh, But this covenant can be summarized uh, in Genesis 26, 4 through 5, where God reiterates uh, this covenant, this Abrahamic covenant, with Abraham's son Isaac. Um, And this is what it says. 
I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, my laws. So God promises three things to Abraham, a nation or descendants, as numerous as the stars, a blessing, and the third one is land. Um, Matthew is saying that those three promises that God made to Abraham were ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The land or kingdom uh, that was promised to Abraham was ultimately fulfilled in Christ. It's, uh, in Christ. It's not a physical kingdom like the one Israel was given with the promised land, but a kingdom of people found in those who follow Christ. And the number of those who follow Christ are as numerous as the stars, another fulfillment that was found in Christ. And lastly, it is Christ, Jesus Christ, who is the blessing. It was through Christ that the true blessing comes. Salvation, a salvation that can only come from him, his, his sacrifice, his defeat of death, his resurrection, and his ascension. And that is all within the very first sentence of Matthew's gospel. I think that is absolutely incredible, amen? So we move on. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David the king. I feel like there is so much I could talk about here, but uh, for the sake of time, I'm not going to cover it all. But of, I just want to point out, of the 12 sons that Jacob had, Judah is singled out. Judah not the, uh, the other 11 sons, or even uh, Joseph's sons, which were given a blessing as well. But Judah is singled out. Why is this? Why Judah? Well, it has to do with Jacob's blessings to Judah in Genesis 49. It says this, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. The tribe of Judah bears the scepter. The all-powerful king comes from the line of Judah. So Matthew actually bookends this paragraph that I just read with Judah and then with King David in which two royal promises are given. And this makes the royal theme explicit here. The King of Kings, the King Messiah has appeared. David's royal authority has now been surpassed by the great David's greater son, the scepter of Judah, King Jesus. 
There's also something else I think that is actually very important in this paragraph. Uh, if you look closely, uh, even with this, in this whole genealogy, Matthew does something that's unheard of. He includes four women in this genealogy. And uh, including women in a genealogy was just not something that was done in ancient Near Eastern times. So what Matthew was trying to convey here, Matthew is conveying more than merely genealogical data, but he is elevating the status of women to be equal with the status of men. So the, the, the four mothers included in this list are an unusual group to find within the pedigree of the Messiah of Israel. First, all four of these women listed were Gentiles. That's to say they were non-Jewish, uh, showing that Christ has come to save both Jew and Gentile. Second, these four women that are listed here were haunted by sexual shame. Sexual shame. The very same shame that Mary Jesus's mother unjustly went through. Tamar uh, seduced her father. Rahab was a prostitute. Bathsheba, or as it's listed here, the wife of Uriah, was forced into adultery. Um, these three things are explicit in the Old Testament, while Ruth, I believe, is more implicit, and there's some de debate over Ruth. So let me just say that uh, there's some euphemistic language used uh, recounting the events of the threshing floor within the book of Ruth that leaves some interpreters very uneasy. So it is therefore customarily asserted that by including these four women, these four mothers, Matthew may have intended to prepare his readers for the Messiah's scandalous origin and a pregnancy before marriage. Um, we should note that such sins, these sins, did not revoke the spiritual character of the individuals that are listed here in this genealogy. Uh, in fact, Jesus came precisely to save these people. Already here in this genealogy, Jesus is presented as the one who will ignore labels of legitimacy and illegitimacy to offer his gospel of salvation to all, including the most despised and outcast of society. In his eyes, all are equal, male and female, sinner and saint. In fact, this passage is saying that he can make the sinner into a saint. Prostitutes, idolaters, seducers, fornicators, what was declared unclean, God makes clean. All right, let's finish up this genealogy. And David was the father of Solomon, the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation of Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah, the father of Shetiel, and Shetiel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abiad, and Abiad, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, 
and Zadok the father of Akim, and Akim the father of Eliad, and Eliad the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Matin, and Matin the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So I could, I could focus on many names here, um, but I'm going to focus on one right now, and that is Joseph, the husband of Mary. So legally, Jesus stands in line to the throne of David. Physically, he is born of a woman, found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Uh, Mary's son is Jesus, who is called the Christ. Jesus' messiahship is again affirmed here. In the Gospel of Luke, Je Joseph, the father of Jesus, is a minor figure. Um, but in Matthew's account, it will be Joseph who is the lead player in the first two chapters. Matthew is saying that Joseph is important. Uh, it is his genealogy that is listed here, after all. His genealogy that is traced. He is not important as the physical father of Jesus, but rather it is saying that he is the legal father of Jesus. And being the legal father of Jesus, Jesus gets all the inheritance that the father has. Matthew then ends the genealogy with this verse, verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Okay, this verse doesn't seem like that big of a deal. Uh, 14 generations, 14 generations, 14 generations. It's a, it could be a little confusing. Another thing we often skip over. But for, um, I think it is actually a big deal uh, for multiple reasons. But for the sake of time, I'm only going to focus on one of these reasons. And it's something that I think is really cool, and hopefully you think that as well. Something that uh, the Anglican theologian and pastor and priest N.T. Wright noticed. And it has to do with the Sabbath and the temple. So first, the temple. In John 1, we see that Jesus is the new temple. Uh, the temple uh, is the place where heaven and earth meet. We see God first establishing his, his temple actually in Genesis 1 and, and the creation. Um, we see that it is a place where God and, and God and humans meet. Uh, a place uh, in space in which God's sphere and the human sphere meet. We also see in Genesis 1, the first Sabbath. And similarly to the temple, um, the Sabbath, which is God's day of rest, was the day when human time and God's time actually meet. It's where time and God coincided. So the Sabbath is what every Jewish person looked forward to every Saturday because of this fact, because it is the place where time and God coincide. So have that in mind. The sense of looking forward uh, to the Sabbath was heightened, um, and, and it's mentioned in Leviticus 25, 1 through 7, with a Sabbath year, a complete sabbatical year, which happened every seven years in Jewish culture. But it didn't end there because they look forward to one more thing, which is also mentioned in Leviticus 25, which talks about a super Sabbath year. 
It says this. This is Leviticus 25, starting with verse 8. You shall count seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, so that the time of the seven weeks of years shall give you 49 years. Then you shall sound the loud trumpet on the tenth day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, you shall sound the trumpet throughout your land. And you shall consecrate the fiftieth year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. When each of you shall return to his property and each of you shall return to his clan. The fiftieth year shall be a jubilee for you. In it you shall neither sow nor reap what grows of itself, nor gather the grapes from the undressed vines. For it is a jubilee, it shall be holy to you. You may eat the produce of the field. In this year of jubilee, each of you shall return to his property. And if you make a sale to your neighbor or buy from your neighbor, you shall not wrong one another. You shall pay your neighbor according to the number of years after that jubilee, and he shall sell to you according to the number of years for crops. If the years are many, you shall increase the price, and if the years are few, you shall reduce the price, for it is the number of crops that he is selling to you. You shall not wrong one another, but you shall fear your God, for I am the Lord your God. This passage is talking about the year of Jubilee, the time in which slaves are freed, a time in which debts are canceled, a time in which life is supposed to get back on track. The Jubilee was, as it were, a once-in-a-lifetime exodus that everyone could experience. But as far as we know, this super sabbatical year was never practiced. But it remains in the scriptures as a reminder that God's time was being marked out week by week, seven years by seven years, half century by half century. Matthew hints at all of this in his own way right at the start of his gospel, but arranging Jesus's genealogy in three groups of 14 generations, or to say, that is six sevens, so that Jesus appears at the start of the seventh seven, the Sabbath of Sabbath moment. And as we have seen, people in Jesus's day were pondering. They were calculating and longing for the greatest super jubilee of them all, the Messiah. In particular, Jesus came to Nazareth and announced this jubilee. This was the time when all the sevens, all the Sabbaths would rush together. This was the moment Israel had been waiting for. If Jesus is a walking, living, breathing temple, like is mentioned in John 1, he is also the walking, celebrating, victorious Sabbath. Therefore, according to Matthew, Jesus is the Jubilee. He is the one who breaks the bonds of slavery and cancels the debts of sin. That's quite a lot packed into 17 verses in a genealogy, right? There's so much more I could talk about here, too. Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament covenants. 
Jesus is the king of kings. Jesus is the one who holds the scepter of Judah. Jesus is our jubilee. This is the genealogy of Jesus. However, however, there is one more unique thing about this genealogy. And to discover what, uh, we have to go to a few other places in Scripture. So I'm going to read them. John 1, 12 through 13 says this, Yet to all who did receive him, him being Jesus, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or husband's will, but born of God. Galatians 4, 4 through 5 says this, But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Romans 8, 14 through 17. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about by uh, your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are his children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. There are many more verses that talk about this, and I hope that you, that you got it. Romans 10, 13 says that anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Anyone, any sinner, as we went over earlier. And if we believe that Jesus is the Christ, the fulfillment, the King, the Savior, dying on that cross to defeat sin, and then defeating death by rising again from the grave. If we believe this, then we receive him. And if we receive him, we become his heirs, his children. And just as Joseph was the legal father of Jesus, Jesus so God, through Christ, becomes the legal father to us. Therefore, this genealogy does not just belong to Jesus. But as adopted children, it also belongs to us. So let us praise God for his justice, his mercy, his grace, his sovereignty, as we cry, thank you, Abba, Father. Let's pray. Our faithful God, we praise you that you are absolutely trustworthy, that the promises you make to people, you, you really do keep. Thank you that these promises were kept with the announcement that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God, and is the Son of David and the Son of Abraham, that Jesus is the righteous King and Rescuer. Thank you that if we repent and put our trust in him, we can become your heirs. Because he has promised that he who will save 
all who do this, Jews and Gentiles, men and women, the sinner to make a saint. Give us a fresh awareness of this today we ask. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.